Good morning, brothers and sisters. We have finally arrived. We're no longer at the end of the beginning or at the beginning of the end. We are at the end of the end of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, What a joy it's been to study this book with you, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, uh, for uh, over a year now, up to this point. And I hope that over the last year, studying this gospel, you have learned new and exciting things about Jesus and what it means to be one of his disciples. Uh, Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 42. Mark 15. We're going to be looking at verses 42 through chapter 16, verse 8. Uh, Mark 15, 42 to 16, verse 8. Uh, Now, before we begin, a few comments I think would be helpful uh, if I made them for you, Uh, because since I've mentioned now that this is the final sermon and we're finishing the Gospel of Mark, some of you might be wondering, what about verses 9 through 20 that we see here in our Bibles? Uh, Well, allow me, first off, lectures could be full, uh, many lectures could be full addressing these verses, but let me just provide a few comments Uh, what I think will be helpful for you to understand about what's going on here. Just about every modern English translation today has some kind of note underneath verse 8 before verse 9, like the one that you see if you're using the ESV Bibles that we have underneath the chairs. Uh, In the ESV, it's bracketed in, in all caps. It says something like, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Uh, And then you'll notice from verse 9 to the end, there are double brackets around it. Uh, The reason for that is, just as the note says, uh, some of the manuscripts, uh, the original Greek manuscripts, which we translate into our English Bibles, the earliest ones that we don't have and the most reliable, the earliest manuscripts we do have and the most reliable manuscripts we have, don't include verses 9 through 20. So for that and a few other reasons, This portion is not considered, uh, generally, by uh, most scholars as part of Mark's account. Um, That's to say what he originally wrote and intended for his audience, the church at Rome. Uh, Now, I don't know if this is familiar to you, if you're aware about this, uh, or if this is just rocking your world right now. Uh, So allow me, just before we get into our passage, to address, I think, three questions that might be popping into your mind. Uh, In my own upbringing... I never heard Christians address this, and I thought that was unhelpful. Uh, So I think uh, it would be helpful for you if I did, uh, so that the first time you encounter them is not by some kind of uh, skeptic or something that then shakes your faith. Uh, Some skeptics will point to this as uh, a reason to question the reliability of Scripture, Uh, but there's nothing spooky or suspicious going on here. On the contrary, I think... Uh, In fact, the fact that Christian translators have marked this section for us, identified it, gives us more reason to be confident in the trustworthiness of Scripture. So first question you might be asking, why is it in brackets? Um, The reason is because when Erasmus collected all the Greek manuscripts, uh, he had older dating ones, like from the 8th century, for example, that were available to him, and they all included those verses. Uh, Since that time... We have discovered more manuscripts that are earlier and, as I said, more reliable uh, that do not include it. And it's become clear uh, that verses 9 through 20 uh, look like later editions from an editor, uh, a Christian editor of some kind. Uh, 
so that's the first question you might be asking. The second one, uh, now that we know why it's in brackets, why keep the longer ending there even? Why not just remove it completely uh, if it's not part of Mark's gospel? Uh, that's a good question, and there's a few different answers. Uh, one answer is because uh, the first English translation, the authorized version, also known as the KJV, King James Version, uh, was so influential in the English world uh, that very much it is part of tradition. Uh, so translators have kept it in there for tradition's sake. Uh, authors you know, refer to the verses still, so it's helpful to have them uh, in there and bracketed, uh, as well as just for the sake of historical transparency. Uh, it's far better to know where variants like this occur and to be able to identify them plainly than simply remove them. Uh, another reason is because uh, the words are not obviously untrue, uh, meaning there's not really any disagreement with anything Scripture teaches in these verses. Uh, so, in fact, uh, if you want an interesting discussion after the service, you can come and ask me, but there are aspects uh, in just about every one of those verses uh, that I could point to in other parts of the Bible that uh, are true. Uh, so we need to recognize that there is lots of history that is recorded accurately, uh, but it may not be considered uh, inspired or part of uh, Scripture. So just because something is true doesn't mean it's inspired, and I think Christians uh, likely added these notes in because they knew the story and they knew those events happened, uh, and they thought it was, en- it was weird to end at verse 8, uh, which I'll get to that later. It's not your typical ending. The third question, do examples like this weaken the testimony or the reliability of Scripture? Uh, and I've already said the short answer is no. Uh, I'd argue that it actually gives us greater confidence. It shows how Scripture has proved to be reliable as we discover more manuscripts over time. Uh, the more archaeological artifacts we find, the greater certainty we have of its truthfulness. Uh, and it's significant that what later editors included does not contradict uh, Scripture, and nor does it add to Scripture either. Uh, Skeptics, like I mentioned, will sometimes use passages like this uh, to just say, now there's no certainty, we don't know exactly what is said in the Bible. Uh, But it's not so much like that at all. Uh, Really what it's like, these collections of manuscripts that make up our Old and New Testaments, uh, it's more like a puzzle. Uh, Imagine you have a puzzle, a a thousand-piece puzzle, for example, uh, and you realize after you put the whole puzzle together, that there are three additional pieces. And they look kind of similar. Uh, The color looks similar to the picture, but you can tell they obviously don't fit anywhere. And so you deduct that they must be from another puzzle, and they were just thrown into the box the last time everyone collected all the pieces and put them back in the box. That's basically like what we have here. Uh, There are basically two places in the Bible with large chunks like this, uh, with brackets around them that we know of. It's the beginning of John 8 and the ending of Mark 16. And if you want to count a third, there's a parenthetical statement in 1 John 5. (laughs) Uh, But we know exactly where they are. Uh, We know even based on the dating of the manuscripts when when they were added, uh, and um, we can identify them clearly. Uh, But the point is that the picture you have, the puzzle that you've put together, is still complete uh, to a incredible amount of certainty. Uh, So Christianity is not just about having blind faith or refusing to question anything. Uh, We don't ignore intellectual arguments or challenges. If anything, 
I think you'll find that when you ask questions uh, about Christianity, over the last two millennia, you'll find excellent answers to any objections that you can find. Uh, In fact, you'll find that Scripture is the most well-attested for historical artifact. Uh, To just make a quick comparison to you, probably the the closest comparison would be the writings of Plato. They're the most well-attested to ancient figure next to the Bible. And we've got about 260 manuscripts of Plato, and those are all dated about a century after his time of writing. Compare that with what we have from the Bible, or specifically the New Testament. Nearly 6,000 manuscripts, some of which date less than 100 years from the time of writing. That's the difference. Uh, Compared with anything else in history, there is an Everest of historical data for Scripture. Brothers and sisters, you can trust the reliability and the truthfulness of Scripture. Uh, And if you want any more uh, information about this, like I said, I actually love that topic, so I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Um, But if you want to do some reading on your own, a good introduction is a little white book by uh, someone named Greg Gilbert titled, Why Trust the Bible. Uh, I would recommend you read that. Now let's read our uh, passage, but before we do, let me provide a, a a little bit of context for you. Uh, For the last few weeks, we have read of Jesus' tragic betrayal by his friend Judas, the crooked trials of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, as well as his trial before uh, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Last week, we saw the way Jesus was innocently crucified uh, between two criminals, fulfilling a prophecy of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Well, our passage this morning picks up right where we left off, just after Jesus took his final breath, and after the Roman centurion, in charge of his death, confessed, truly, this man was the Son of God. With all that in mind, let's read our passage together now. Mark 15, starting in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. 
But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Mark records at the end of his account of the life of Jesus, his burial and his resurrection in these verses, two crucial and irrefutable facts about Jesus. And therefore, the main idea for Mark's original audience is the same for us as it was for them. The main idea is that we should marvel at Jesus because he really died and he really rose just as he told his disciples he would. We should marvel at Jesus because he really died and he really rose just as he told his disciples he would. My prayer is that these two truths would remind you that we worship the Savior who is alive and victorious and therefore able to follow through on all he has promised to us. So point one, Jesus was buried. And this is in verses 42 through 47 that first paragraph of chapter 15, the end of chapter 15. Uh, I'll give you an illustration from my own life, briefly, uh, from the Rivette household that explains what I think Mark is doing here. Uh, Lately, in the Rivette household, uh, we have noticed an uptick in uh, flying insects, I think due to the heat. Uh, It seems every day we wage war against these little creatures. Uh, And uh, daily, in fact. I have given myself the title of Fly Slayer for this reason, uh, because I consider myself to be quite good at it. Uh, And when I see one, I go into hunting mode. Uh, I have a specific method uh, that apparently is not working well enough, because we just recently got one of those little lights that's supposed to draw them in and uh, get them that that way. But I usually use a dish towel. That's my preferred weapon of choice. Uh, And I find that's the best way, most effectively, to stun them out of the air or when they've landed. And once they've been stunned, you can just go over and pick them up and dispose of the body. Uh, Well, there's a rule uh, about my method and uh, about this whole battle going on in our household. And the rule is simply this. If you can't find the body, then he's not dead. If you don't know where the corpse is, he's probably still alive and he will come back again to torment you. No corpse, no assurance of death. Well, that's a silly way to illustrate the importance of what Mark is recording for us about Jesus in this passage, that he really died. And you know how we know that he really died? His corpse is confirmed by three different parties, the women, And if you look just ahead of our, or above our verses in verses 40 and 41 of chapter 15, then in 47, uh, they see the body of Jesus. Joseph himself uh, witnesses his death and retrieves the body and buries it in his own tomb. And then the centurion uh, also verifies to Pilate that Jesus' corpse uh, has become a corpse. Uh, This goes against the modern popular Muslim objection to Jesus, by the way. Uh, They believe in Jesus. They'll say he's a prophet just like Muhammad. Uh, But uh, I have asked both in an American mosque and an Indian mosque, a mosque in India, uh, what about the resurrection? 
What did they think about it? Did Jesus raise from the dead? And the answer was the same from both of them. They basically said uh, that uh, they arrested the wrong guy. It was a doppelganger, a lookalike, and they crucified the wrong person. Uh, This is what's called the imposter theory. Jesus was never on the cross and he never died. Then you just remove uh, the importance or the power of the resurrection. Uh, that that, that uh, theory has other problems, of course, I think obvious ones. But what we see in Mark's gospel uh, is that Jesus, the Son of God, really did die, and that's well attested to, and that he was buried. Uh, we know exactly how he died, and we now hear about how he was buried in this passage. A man named Joseph of Arimathea Uh, who was a respected member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, uh, thinks favorably of Jesus. Mark describes him as seeking the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus announced at the very beginning of Mark's gospel. If you'll remember chapter 1, verse 15, it's Jesus' first words in the book recorded, and it's his first sermon in his ministry. He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, Joseph, being a wealthy man of his stature, is able to give Jesus a proper burial. And many have recognized that Joseph's actions as a wealthy man uh, for Jesus, uh, they recognize a fulfillment from Isaiah 53, verse 9, a prophecy which says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He's with the wicked as he's crucified next to two criminals, and yet he is like a rich man in his death as he's buried with dignity in a rich man's tomb. It's a bold request uh, to make, uh, to ask for the body of Jesus from Joseph to Pilate uh, as a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Remember, this is the same group that demanded the death of Jesus. His job and certainly his reputation were probably on the line with making this request. Not only that, but remember that crucifixion was for criminals. Uh, It was especially shameful in public. The cross was outside the city on the main road, kind of to make a statement to those passing by. Jesus was probably uh, naked, as most were who were crucified. And normally, crucified criminals are left on the cross for days uh, so that their corpse, as it decomposes, is given to the birds or it's taken down and thrown in a trash heap called Gehenna near the city for the wild dogs. But Jesus is given an honorable Jewish burial by Joseph, which I think he only must have done because, like the centurion, he believed Jesus truly was the Son of God. As Mark tells us, he was seeking the kingdom. The women also desire to give Jesus an honorable burial. We see that's why they are bringing spices to anoint him. uh, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday. Uh, The reason they didn't do that sooner is because, as Mark writes in verse 42, it's the day of preparation, uh, meaning Friday, the day before the Sabbath. Preparations had to be made because no work was allowed to be done on the Sabbath, so you had to prepare for everything you needed the day before. Uh, They wouldn't have been able to uh, go to Jesus and anoint him before they buried him. Uh, We know from the previous passage, Mark records Jesus died at 3 p.m., and uh, the day of preparation would have began, or or rather the Sabbath, the day of preparation would end. The Sabbath would begin 
at sundown at 6 p.m., which leaves only a few hours for Joseph to go to Pilate and bury the body. My guess is the women in their grief uh, did not have the time uh, to go and anoint Jesus' body, or they didn't know uh, uh, soon enough until after they saw him being placed in the tomb and the stone sealing it away. Now, one of the things that I've tried to point out about Mark's gospel as we've gone through are details that indicate uh, historical reliability about, this, about the stories. Uh, and there are examples of that in this passage as well, and I want to draw your attention to a few of them. Uh, the first is just the surprise of Pilate when he hears that Jesus has died as quickly as he did. Uh, it just points to the unusualness of Jesus' death. Uh, that wouldn't have been thought of if you were trying to convince people that your story was true. Similarly, you have Joseph, a member of the group responsible for putting him to death, uh, not exactly a character that would be first on your list. Uh, and then another major hint, of course, is the women present, uh, which, by the way, brings something up important. Uh, Mark mentions that the women have followed him ever since Galilee at the beginning of his ministry. What else is popping into your mind except for what about the disciples? Where are they? They're simply not mentioned at all. They apparently scattered, so the disciples are not painting it in a positive light at all. And yet these are the chosen witnesses to the death of Jesus. Women, a soldier, and a Jewish authority. Jesus' death is not only confirmed, but his placement in the tomb is as well. Uh, which is observed by the women in verse 47. Uh, they're the first to visit in chapter 16 in this short section. Uh, the women are mentioned three times if we count verses 40 and 41 here at the end of Mark. They play a crucial part in the narrative. Uh, and I'll just remind you uh, that if you wanted a credible witness in Jesus' day, the testimony of women was generally not accepted as reliable by the culture. It wasn't accepted in the courts. But the prominence given to women in the Bible is remarkable for its day. Uh, this is a side note, but um, I'm just always shocked uh, at people who treat the Bible like it's a kind of antiquated, uh, oppressive book with barbaric practices. But when you read it, you'll understand that the Bible provides so much dignity and value to women and to children, to slaves and to the least in society. Our culture has no right to claim the moral high ground. Uh, over the Bible. Our values and morals are derived from a good God who has never changed since the creation of the world. And here's just one other example of authenticity. Uh, there's just no way, if you were fabricating a story, you would make women the final uh, or first witnesses, the primary witnesses in the story, if you invented it. The only way details like this are recorded is if it's actually happened. So friends, how can we apply this uh, first paragraph to our lives? Uh, well, first, have confidence in the Bible. Have confidence in the Bible. Uh, the historical evidence has stood the test of time. The textual evidence has as well. Uh, some of the details in this story simply just don't make sense unless they've actually happened. So friends, have confidence. Uh, and don't let your faith be shaken when someone alerts you to something that you didn't know already. Uh, chances are, even if you don't know the answer to a question, someone else has thought long and hard and spent much time about it and provided a very good answer to that objection. 
Uh, It's remarkable how much scrutiny the Bible has been under in the past. Uh, Were any other work put in the same position, I don't think it would stand. Uh, Second point of application, evangelize to and pray for the people that you wouldn't expect to believe in Jesus. Evangelize to and pray for the people that you wouldn't expect to believe in Jesus. Again and again in Mark's gospel, there are figures that you wouldn't expect that are held out as examples of faith. Think of the bleeding woman, uh, the centurion, the poor widow, Levi the tax collector, the Syrophoenician woman, blind Bartimaeus, and the list goes on. In this passage, it's Joseph, a member of the group responsible for Jesus' very death. Brothers and sisters, God loves to take people in the world that you would never expect to become Christians and to convert them in order to showcase that it is the power of God to save sinners and not anything that we do. So just think for a moment, who are the people in your life that you would consider to be least likely to believe in Jesus? Brothers and sisters, pray for them. Have courage to talk about your faith with them, to share the good news of Jesus with them. It's the Lord that changes hearts. We merely sow the seed. There's three amazing examples of faith here at the end of the gospel. Women, Gentile, and a Jew, all unlikely, counterintuitive to our thinking, But even more interesting is the two parties that testify to the death to Pilate, Joseph of Arimathea and the Roman centurion in charge of Jesus' death, both representatives of the two groups responsible for his death. Both show signs of favor towards him and interest in the kingdom of God. How ironic that these two people, uh, of all others, are the ones to report to Pilate. It's a reminder that Jesus can change hearts of any who earnestly seek him. It's a sign that Jesus changes hearts of men from the inside out. It is a sign of Jesus' great love for those even who put him to death. Dear friends, if Jesus can forgive and redeem a man from the Sanhedrin and a Roman official, then there's not a soul on this earth that he cannot save. Third point of application. Have courage to show your faith in public. Uh, It's easy to skim over the courage that it would have taken Joseph to face Pilate uh, in requesting the body of Jesus. Uh, He is not a family member. He could easily, by association, get himself imprisoned at least by associating with Jesus. Uh, Not to mention, what about his reputation as a respected member of the council? We read that he was respected. What would his other councilmen think of him? Those pressures are not so different from pressures that ordinary Christians face today. Do you shy away from admitting that you go to church? Or that you think the Bible is really God's word? Are you worried about what others will think of you when they find out that you're a Christian? Jesus went to the cross for us. We can have the courage to call him Lord in front of the world. One other note Uh, is that in the qualification for elders in 1 Timothy 3, one of the qualifications is that uh, an elder be well thought of by outsiders. Uh, Joseph is a great example of that, being thought of well in uh, in his job. We can aspire for that as well. 
Point one is Jesus was buried. Point two, Jesus was raised. Mark 16, 1 through 8. Uh, so after the Sabbath, we read, the women take, make their way to the tomb. Uh, this would have been Sunday after sunrise, the first day of the week. Uh, that day is later referred to in the rest of the New Testament as the Lord's Day. It's the day that Christians have gathered uh, every week ever since the day that Jesus got up to celebrate his resurrection. And the women along the way, uh, what I find very interesting, they discuss a logistical problem in verse 3. It says, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Uh, And this is not exactly a small problem. Just so you know, these tombs are typically carved out of large rock. uh, And the, the stones themselves that were the doors, the entrances, uh, were usually uh, put in, inside of a divot in the ground. So the kind that is described by Mark would have rolled and dropped into it, making it a little easier to set in place but really hard to lift out. Uh, it's said that you would have required many men to do that kind of job. Uh, so it's assumed the women hoped that there would be enough soldiers to get the job done for them. But one other interesting piece of info is that uh, many of these stone tombs, uh, we've just found out in history, typically have square doors. Uh, But there are are some tombs that we've discovered with uh, disc-like stones, like what we read, that you can roll, kind of like a mason stone. Uh, And we've not found very many of them. Uh, But they tend to be the nicer tombs, and it's assumed that these are the tombs that the wealthy people had. Uh, There's only a few tombs that we've discovered that fit this description in Palestine, uh, but all of them are dated to the time of Jesus. But this logistical concern is quickly removed when the women arrive at the tomb. They look up and they see that the stone has already been rolled back. And that's not the thing that shocked them so much as when they entered the tomb, they found an angel sitting on the right side. This angel is described as looking like a young man dressed in a white robe. Now, if you're new to reading the Bible, uh, you'll find that sometimes angelic beings are described as fiery creatures, and other times, just like this, they're described as taking on a a human form, like here or before Jesus' birth. But Matthew says that his appearance was like lightning, uh, that his clothing was white as snow. Luke describes the robe as dazzling. Uh, Even though Mark's description is minimal, you can tell that it's clear to the women that this is an angel because they are terrified of him. Uh, Mark says they're alarmed. And when they fear, he says they are astonished and afraid. And then Mark records what the angel says to them in verses 6 to 7 in response to their fear. Look at those verses. It says, And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. It's a lot of info to take in after such a shocking discovery. Uh, If anything can be said, it's that the women were not expecting the tomb to be empty nor were any of Jesus' disciples expecting him to come back from the dead. seems like they just returned back home to Galilee, perhaps to go back to their jobs as fishermen, despite despite him telling them that he would meet them there. 
But the empty tomb is just that. It's an empty tomb. Uh, Notice that the way Mark presents it to us, uh, there is no factual difference between Jesus' death and burial in the tomb and then the discovery of the empty tomb. But the discovery of the tomb being empty did not tell the women what happened to Jesus. The angel did. Um, When I went on my first date with Karis, uh, my now wife, uh, I sometimes refer to this date uh, as one of the most memorable memorable dates, for starters. Uh, But I often call it the most expensive date ever. And the reason I call it that is not for good reasons. Uh, It's not because I took her to this wonderful dinner, the finest restaurant in town. It's not because I rented a nice car to pick her up in or anything like that or had any kind of elaborate schemes. Uh, No, it was nothing like that. We went on a a coffee date. And when we returned to the parking lot where I had parked, I looked at the space I parked in, and it was empty. (laughs) Uh, The car was gone. It was a horrible feeling uh, that I experienced. Just imagine the embarrassment. Uh, I didn't know what happened. I actually thought that the car was stolen. That's the kind of car I drove, the one that would be easily stolen. Uh, if you see a car on the side of the road that has been stolen in your mind, just that's, that's kind of like what I drove. Um, but I was nervous about the cost, replacing it. I didn't know how we were going to get home yet. I was embarrassed about the ending of the date. Uh, Didn't know what to do until I looked around and I saw on the opposite side of the parking lot a sign. And that sign basically said, customer parking only, violators will be towed, and a phone number underneath that you could call. Uh, So uh, I went inside the store that we had parked next to and asked uh, the workers there if they had seen a tow truck. And it turns out uh, they did see a tow truck. My car had been towed. And so that's the end of the story. Well, what's my point? Uh, Well, my point is, I needed the sign at the other side of the parking lot to know what happened, how to interpret my missing car. And that's the case for these women as well, and for anyone who thinks about the empty tomb. Uh, The empty tomb is a historical fact, but the meaning of the empty tomb is given to us by the revelation of the angel, the words spoken to the women. Jesus had been raised from the dead, which they were clearly not expecting. Uh, The angel confirms everything that had happened. Jesus was crucified. You're not dreaming. He has not only been crucified, but he has risen. And then uh, he says one of my favorite lines from this passage, which I incorporated in the main idea, there you will see him just as he told you. The angel just reminds them of what Jesus has already told them. We have it recorded in three different places. Clearly, in the Gospel of Mark, chapters 8, 9, and 10, uh, he likely told them even more than that personally and privately, and it wasn't recorded, that he would be crucified and in three days rise. And he even does say that he would meet them in Galilee, I believe, in chapter 10. But they couldn't even imagine a world in which Jesus could be killed, so they were deaf to hearing that instruction when they heard it. They look and see the place that his body lay, that it's no longer occupied, and then the only explanation is what the angel explained. Jesus rose from the dead. 
he left the angel behind to explain his disappearance from the tomb. Notice the reaction from the women in verse 8. Do they leap for joy? Do they rejoice? Do they say, just as we expected? They're terrified. They're trembling. Notice that the angel specifically says, Jesus of Nazareth, correctly identifying Jesus as the very same Lord they knew and traveled with. They didn't crucify the wrong guy. The women didn't visit the wrong tomb. This was the resting place of Jesus of Nazareth. Did you notice as well that Peter got a shout-out from the angel among the disciples? It's another favorite line of mine from this passage. It's just been sweet for me to meditate on. Uh, in, in tonight's prayer service, I'm going to have a brief devotional about uh, the conversation that Jesus has with Peter after this, uh, when he appears privately to him. Uh, but I love that the angel mentions Peter specifically out of the disciples. It's as if he knows that Peter is especially broken during this time. The last time we saw Peter, he was cowering away from a servant girl and some off-duty guards in a courtyard. He denied his Lord three times. He was weeping bitterly because he promised not to. But the angel tells the women to go see his disciples and to make sure Peter knows. Jesus will meet them in Galilee. It's a beautiful image of a shepherd caring for his sheep. The women leave. Mark says they went out and fled, and out of their fear and astonishment, they don't tell anyone. It's a strange way to end the story. It's abrupt. It's a little bit like finishing a song uh, on the note before the note that resolves a melody. It just leaves you waiting, hanging on the edge of your seat. But when we consider the way Mark has presented the ministry of Jesus to us, it actually fits his style quite well. Mark's audience wouldn't have needed to hear much more than that. Uh, perhaps they had already heard more stories from Peter, who was their pastor before Mark. Uh, but the gospel, in ending this, abrupt, in, in the, ending this abruptly, uh, leaves us with anticipation. And I think that's the point. It's a reminder that Jesus could not be held to the grave. It's a reminder that He has gone ahead of us. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father where He remains now, Jesus preached a message of forgiveness. He called his disciples to himself and told them he would make them fishers of men. And after rising from the grave, we know his message still stands. That the kingdom of God has arrived in his own coming. That the temple is no longer the locus of the presence of God or the worship of his people. But Jesus is. His spirit that indwells the hearts of believers, his body which makes up the church. Forgiveness is found in the spotless Lamb of God who gave his life as a ransom for many. The man that nature bows down to and listens to submitted himself to the hands of wicked men so that by his blood we could be set free from our sins, forgiven by God and given peace. The Son of Man came not to serve and will return one day to bring all things into judgment. Everything he's taught throughout his ministry is solidified and confirmed by the way he 
lived out perfect obedience in the Father's plan, uh, and then appeared again, rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. Brothers and sisters, we can have confidence in our faith because of the one who we have faith in. The strength of our faith is not in our ability to believe the miraculous, but in the power of Jesus, who got up from the grave three days after the most gruesome and shameful death. The power of salvation comes not from our striving, but Christ's humility to take the curse of sin upon himself so that we could be saved. Uh, Dear friend, if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, consider his sacrifice. Consider turning from your sins and putting your faith in him today. There's no other way to explain the empty tomb or the sudden changes of the disciples' behavior from scaredy cats, absent scaredy cats, to confident preachers we read about in the book of Acts. And I'd like to point out that the existence of the death of Jesus is universally agreed upon. The empty tomb is nearly universally agreed upon. But I think the empty tomb presented to us as a matter of fact is something that the world has to grapple with. So if you're unsure about that, then consider the alternatives. How is it this tomb was discovered empty? What are the other options? How can we apply this section to our lives? I have five points that I'll try to move through quickly. Uh, Three for uh, those who believe in Jesus and two for others perhaps exploring Christianity. Point one, don't let fascination with things like angels and demons distract you from the most important realities. Jesus is alive. Christianity all boils down to whether or not Jesus got up from the grave. Uh, That's why Paul says uh, that our faith is in vain if the resurrection is not true. Angels and demons exist, that's that's true. Uh, But don't get carried away with speculation about them so that you forget who's in control, the man who conquered the grave. If you're captivated by the idea of the spiritual realm, or interested in spirituality, but you're not really paying much attention to Jesus, then you're missing the whole thing. You're missing the whole point. That would be like the women uh, suddenly obsessing over the angel and just ignoring what he's telling them. Don't be afraid. Go find Jesus. He's just the messenger in the story. I'll remind you again how minimal Mark's description of the angel is. Pay attention to Jesus. He's the main character of the universe. He is worthy of our attention and our worship and our affection and our devotion. Second point of application. Don't run from God. Don't run from God. This relates to the absence of Peter and his disciples. Uh, It's embarrassing that they're obviously nowhere to be found. Uh, But Peter, we know, was backsliding. But what a beautiful message delivered to backsliding Christians in this passage. To see that the angel mentioned Peter specifically. Dear friend, if you are running from the Lord like the prodigal son, run back to Christ's open arms. He knows where you are. He loves you still. He alone can redeem you. 
You may have failed Jesus, but he has not failed you. He promises to never leave or forsake you. Third point, prioritize the Lord's day for worship, devotion, and fellowship. Uh, Ever since the day of the empty tomb was discovered, Christians have gathered together on the first day of the week to celebrate it. Uh, They began calling it the Lord's day in the rest of the New Testament. So Sunday is not just a second Saturday if you were a follower of Christ. Uh, Many treat it that way here in America. No, it's set aside and dedicated to God as the first day of the week, much like we uh, set aside our tithe when uh, we receive our paychecks to give to the Lord, so we give the first day of the week to the Lord as well. Uh, Christians don't just celebrate the resurrection of Christ on Easter once a year. They celebrate the resurrection every week uh, that we gather together. Uh, And I know that this is hard in America. Uh, There are lots of things to do, perhaps even harder if you have a family. Uh, There's an endless number of activities, uh, sporting events that you can uh, go to. Uh, But friends, prioritize celebrating the resurrection of Christ by gathering with the saints. Uh, Two easy ways to do this. Prioritize the main gathering of the Sunday service like you are here today. Prioritize the evening prayer service when we come back tonight to pray together. If, If this service is like the main meal where you're being fed on the Word of God, uh, the evening service is like hanging out in the living room afterwards. Uh, It's a more casual time, but it's a wonderful time to spend together as family and a powerful time that we can pray together for more specific things going on in the life of our church. Application point four. Uh, For those uh, perhaps interested in Christianity or searching, Go to Jesus. Are there logistical concerns keeping you from obeying Christ? Uh, Perhaps you want to follow, but you don't know what your friends or family are going to think. You know the Bible is true, but you feel like it's too late to change the direction of your life. Perhaps you know it means you might have to change your profession if you choose to follow Christ. Perhaps you want to become a Christian, but... Uh, You know you can't answer every objection against it, and you would rather uh, answer all of those first. Uh, Friend, those are all logistical concerns. That would be like like the women deciding, uh, when they didn't know how the stone was going to be rolled away, to just decide, we just won't go to the tomb. Can you imagine? If you're held up by a, a logistical concern from going to Jesus you might be missing out on a miracle in your life. Go to Jesus. Fifth point of application, again, for those uh, perhaps exploring or interested in Christianity, you can't create your own Jesus. Now, perhaps you're thinking, I already believe in Jesus. Uh, I don't agree with everything the Bible says about him or says generally. But if that's you, then the only Jesus you believe in is an imaginary one. But the Bible is way too specific to do that. And notice how the angel specifically, exactly says which Jesus he's referring to. There's no confusion. Jesus of Nazareth, who was rejected by his own people back in chapter 6, if you'll remember. You can reject the Jesus of the Bible. God has given anyone the freedom to do that if you wish. 
But don't fool yourself into thinking you can create a new one. The real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is a very specific person who said and did very specific things. One of those things was dying on the cross, being buried in a tomb as a ransom for his people, and then getting back up three days later, paying that debt in full, assuring his followers that he is victorious over sin and death, guaranteeing life beyond the grave for those who follow him. When we began our study, I told you that the book was all about the person of Jesus. It was all about who he is and why he came. He's the Son of God the Father. He's the Messiah, the Son of David, the Passover Lamb, come to save sinners by dying on a cross and rising again. This account was written for our edification, to encourage our faith that Jesus is who he claimed to be that he did what he said he would do, that the scriptures would be fulfilled. This account of Jesus should have every reader asking, am I amazed and astonished at Jesus? Specifically the conclusion of his ministry that ends in resurrection. To conclude the gospel according to Mark, I would simply pose the same question to you. There's one promise left unfulfilled from Jesus' lips. It was a promise given to the high priest during his trial in front of the Sanhedrin, chapter 14, verse 62. When asked if he was the Christ, Jesus said confidently, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. No one knows when that hour will come, but we can be sure that it will. For Mark's readers facing persecution from the Roman government under Nero, who was brutal to Christians, an abrupt ending like this highlights the astonishing power of Jesus and the fear of those who witness it. And yet imagine the comfort for Christians potentially facing a death of their own to know that the Savior they worship has defeated the grave. So, brothers and sisters, are you amazed by Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning for your Son, Jesus. We give you praise for the obedient life he lived, for the death he died in our place, for the confirmation of his resurrection. Lord, we pray that we would eagerly wait for his return, Uh, that, that we would look forward with anticipation to the time that we gather with all of your people around your throne to celebrate the Lamb who was slain and to sing your praises forever. We pray these things in your Son's precious name. Amen.